We are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Would you please turn there with me? And the title of this morning's study is The Restrainer of the Last Days. As you probably are well aware by now, this church, um, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, written to them. And um, Paul is writing from Corinth. He is encouraging them in their faith, um, commending them for many things. But one of the things that spent, he takes a considerable percentage of both of these letters doing is to write about the events of the last days. Because they were questions that they had as a result of people giving a contradictory message to what Paul had already delivered to them. So we saw this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 5, and we're going to come back and reference those um, again in just a moment. But we see it again here in chapter 2, um, and then in our next study in Thessalonians um, chapter 2, we'll, we'll continue the, the same end times theme. But let's read verses 1 through 7 to begin with. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, we ask you, Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the Son of Man, excuse me, and the man of sin is revealed, the Son of Perdition opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now, verse 6, you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And he continues on talking about that, that Antichrist in the last days, and we'll get more of that in our next study. But we begin in verse 1 talking about two events that uh, Paul wants them to be clear on. It's the coming of the Lord, and it's our gathering to Him. Our coming, His coming, our gathering to Him. Among believers, you have those that will hold to typically one of three views. A post-tribulation view, which says um, the, the uh, coming of the Lord and the rapture of the church happen um, at the same time at the end of the tribulation, at the so-called post-tribulation. Another view is to see that um, they are different events, and that would be held by both the pre-trib and mid-trib. And so um, they would say, second, everybody agrees, second coming is at the end of the tribulation. Um, but the mid-trib would say the 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 gathering together or the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation. Pre-trib would say it happens before the tribulation begins. So um, I fall in that um, last category that I believe that these are two separate events separated by seven years, and the church is gone before the tribulation begins. So he's writing to them about these two events. And um, again, people fall into different camps with this. Uh, I'm firmly convinced of this. I I don't think that um, I know the answers to all of it, but as I study scriptures, this is the one one that gives uh, the best answer and answers the most difficulties. Um, I know some of you may have a a slightly different take on that, 
And um, that's okay. A, the view of the rapture is not an essential to the faith or for fellowship, for that matter. Um, believing that Jesus is coming back is part of the doctrine of the Christian faith. You don't believe Jesus is coming back, you're not a Christian because that's part of the doctrine of the Christian faith. No negotiating there. Kind of like his death and his burial and his resurrection, virgin birth, his deity, and so on. This is an, that is an essential. The timing of the rapture, not so much. Now, I believe it's coming first. And if um, uh, the rapture happens and um, I am correct, I will explain it on the way up. And you'll never have been so happy to be wrong. Um, so <laughs> you'll be like, I'm glad you were right. But um, this is what I believe Scripture teaches. And we're going to take some time to explore some of those thoughts. I don't want to fight over it. I'm happy to have a discussion about it. I'm happy to hear your um, your take on it and why you believe what you do. Um, so I know that good godly men and women differ on this, but it is what we believe. So as we look at this, um, we come into verse 2, and he says, which is the issue, is that they were troubled. Don't, don't be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit, by any means, as though the day of the Lord had come. So the day of the Lord had not begun. Then This is what he wants them to know. Because for them, if the day of the Lord had begun, then it was different than what he had taught them. And that was a reason for them being disturbed emotionally, intellectually. That's why they were shaken. That's why they were troubled. Is because they, what they were being taught by others did not align with what Paul had taught them. And that is that they would not be in the day of the Lord. They thought the second, if they were of the impression, though, that the second coming of Christ um, was about to happen, um, they would have been taught that they would endure the great tribulation. That, that would make sense. If they had been taught they're going to go through the tribulation and then the second coming, then this wouldn't be a troubling word to them. You're in the day of the Lord. Well, yeah, we've got to go through the day of the Lord. We're in the day of the Lord. Good. It's almost over. That would be an appropriate response to thinking about being in the day of the Lord. Now, if you've been taught that you're not going to be in the day of the Lord, and somebody said you're in the day of the Lord, that's why you would be troubled. That's why you would be shaken. That is why you would be uh, disturbed. If you turn with me back into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just a couple of verses to look at. Um, verses 4 and 5. So you just got to go back a couple of pages here. It says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, meaning the day of the Lord, should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. In verse 10, speaking of Jesus who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Edify yourself in this hope that you are not going to go through difficulty. As he says in verse 9, you are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. This is what comforted them, as knowing that they were not in the day of the Lord, and they were not going to experience uh, the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It's a future day when God will judge this world for the rebellion against him, and their persecution against the nation of Israel. It is a day when God will also chasten Israel and prepare them for the second coming of Christ. That is a simplified form of the day of the Lord. If that's too complicated, think of it this way. The day of the Lord is a time in the future when God will wake up, uh, will judge nations and wake up a nation. 
judge nations and wake up a nation. More is written about the day of the Lord than just about any other day in human history in Scripture. There is so much that is spoken of this. Revelation 6 through 19 is all about the day of the Lord. It's what we're studying right now on Wednesday night. But this is a time that's going to be of particular trouble for the nation of Israel, not the church. When you read about the church in the day of the Lord, the language is, be comforted. You're not appointed to wrath. Um, You're not of that day. You're not of darkness. But when we read Jeremiah 30, verses 7 through 9, speaking to the nation of Israel, we read something very different. He says, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's, Israel's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. For he, it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Well, they don't acknowledge Jesus as king, do they? The descendant of David. This has not happened yet. And whom, the Lord says, whom I will raise up. So the day of the Lord is a time in which Israel is going to be troubled. But it's a time that we will be saved out of. We continue reading, and I could give you endless verses, um, but I want to look at these next three. Isaiah 2, 10 through 12 says, Enter the, into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and, from the, and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. You can understand why the Thessalonians were troubled about being a part of that kind of a day. In Joel chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Notice the, the, uh, the allusions to the temple in this, because it's going to relate to our passage back in Thessalonians in just a moment. Well, you who minister before the altar, come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Again, this is why they were troubled. And lastly, Joel 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand. And look at this, verse 2. A day of darkness and gloominess. What did we read in 1 Thessalonians 5? You are not in what? Darkness. This is a day of darkness. He says, you're not in darkness that this day should overcome you. A day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Nor will there ever be any such after them even for many successive generations. And if you were here on our Wednesday night studies through um, Revelation 8 and 9, you understand what he's talking about and the terrible armies that will be released from the Abuso and will be devastating planet Earth. This is the day of the Lord. 
And we could go through many, many more descriptions, but I tried to find some verses that answer the question of what is the day of the Lord, because that is the central focus of their question. We're in the day of the Lord. You said we weren't going to be in the day of the Lord. He says, you're not in the day of the Lord. You're not supposed to be in the day of the Lord. I told you these things already. And he then moves on in verses 3 through 7 to give them three indicators of when this day would begin so that they could conclude, oh, we're not in it, just like you had taught us. And so we look at verse 3 for the first indicator. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. This falling away... It's the Greek word apostasia, and it simply means to a departure, an abandoning of a position once held. And so in this context, it would be their faith in the Lord. So there's going to be those who name the name of Christ, and there's going to be a falling away, an apostasy, an abandoning of that truth. And he says, so this is something that's going to happen. Now, there were those that were falling away in Paul's day, but it wasn't like what he said was going to come. Not like what Jesus said it was going to be like. And how people will be following false Christ. And, and really, in the day of the Lord, the, 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 the prophet, the false prophet and the Antichrist, they are going to seduce the entire world. And we'll read about more of that as we move through Second Thessalonians in our next study. So he says there's going to be this, this apostasy. Now, listen. The seeds for that apostasy are being laid right now. Now, I don't know how long the Lord is going to tarry, and I'm not going to even begin to take a guess of when he's going to come back. I just know we're supposed to be ready every day for him. But the seeds for this falling away, they're being planted right now. And specifically, let me just zero in on one thing as it relates to the Word of God. There are plenty of people, there are plenty of seminaries and pastors that are and elders of churches that are teaching that this book finds its authority in your understanding. That is something that is so popular. It is so common. It's the difference between authorial intent, the author's intent, versus the reader's response. Where does the weight lie? Does it lay with the one who wrote it and said, this is what I mean? Understand it, or does it lie with the person who reads it and says, well, I feel like it means this. Be concerned when you get in a group of people and they read a passage and they say, now what does it mean to you? Well, if what it means to you is what God said because you've studied it, then good. But this idea that everybody can just, well, this is what it means to me. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not a professor and I'm not an existentialist saying that literature can mean whatever you want it to mean. Do you remember those classes in college? If you went to secular school, you do. You, you, you would read it. And I can remember my freshman year of college. And um, we had this, um, and I was a terrible student. I really was. But, um, you know, it was the first week, so I was still good. And um, and they, and, you know, we were supposed to read this short story, and I read this short story and came in and, you know, what it was supposed to be about. But I was in no hurry to give my answers. And um, everybody started to give answers. And I remember sitting there going, I don't have a clue of what I read, I guess. Because what they were saying had, in my mind, nothing to do at all with the story. 
And I just was sitting there, and, and they saw teach little Troy, and I'm like, well, I don't know. This is what it meant to me. And go, well, yeah, I think that's what the author meant. But all of these other ideas are valid, too. If you send an email, do you feel that way? That people can interpret that and give their, that their response as a reader has as much authority as you as the author? I don't think you feel that way at all. You don't even feel that way about a simple little text. How about as a parent giving instruction to your kids? Where does the authority lie? With you, the parent, giving the instruction, that verbal instruction, or with the child hearing the instruction and saying, well, uh, to me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's not, yeah, I don't even need to finish it, do I? How about on the road? Authorial intent or driver response? I don't say what it's like in this town. I'm just saying, what should it be, okay? The signs and the symbols, should we have a working definition that has come from the author, and we know what those are. And I mean, this goes, how about within military, in orders? How about for those of you that are musicians, or you're a part of a band, and you're reading the music? Does an A mean play an A, or does it mean play whatever you want? Well, to me, at this point, this song just kind of feels like, you know, a, a D. Well, we've got a problem. And we don't have music. We have noise. You know, um, you think about this in a political situation. Outside of, I'm not trying to make a political statement, but, you know, there are two different approaches when you think about the Constitution of the United States. There are those who say we need to find out what the original um, authors, the framers of the Founding Fathers meant when they wrote this, because this is how we should be governed as a nation. But others say this is a living, breathing document that is changing and evolving, and we need to make certain that we are constantly adapting um, our understanding of this document to fit the current culture. And this is two very, very different ways of looking at this country, and they exist today. And that same mentality that exists in the literature class and that exists here and exists there is creeping into the church and is actually, unfortunately, more than a creep. It's a well-established line of thinking. And when we do that, then we are set up for an apostasy, for a departure, an abandoning of a position once held. That's apostasy. What, what, was, what was the original position? you got to find out what the author meant. And when you find out what the author meant, then you know the original position. And if you move from there, then it's apostasy. I mean, this is simple stuff. This is not complicated stuff. But this is the days in which we live. And the seeds of that are out there. And um, there is going to be a great falling away. Now, whether what I just described is going to be the thing that kind of allows for such an apostasy or something else, only time will tell. But I, I know that this certainly is the kind of thing that would allow for that kind of rebellion. The Word of God was written and inspired by him. He knew what it meant when he said it, and he still knows what it means today, and it's our job to find out and to be true to it. So, hey, don't worry. You're not in the day of the Lord because there's not been this massive falling away. The Antichrist and the, the false prophet, they are not getting away with um, their delusion of the, of the world. We'll talk about that again later. Secondly, still in verse 3, the second half of, well, the end of verse 3, it says, And the man of sin is revealed. The second indicator is that the man of sin must be revealed, the son of perdition. And who is he? 
Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is clearly the Antichrist, and we'll make a cross-reference in just a moment that will show you this. But to the Thessalonians, you're not in the day of the Lord because the Antichrist has not been revealed. You can't be in the day of the Lord unless the Antichrist is revealed. And so... As we look at this, we can go back to the words of Jesus who warned about this very event that Paul is referring to. It is called the abomination of desolation. So when the Antichrist stands in Israel in their newly built temple and says, I am God, worship me. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. Turn with me. It's an important passage to cross-reference from chapter 2. Uh, you, it's one of those verses you want to know is is there in context. So let's read down to just verse 22 from verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, so even before Jesus spoke of it, before Paul spoke of it, the prophet Daniel spoke of this event, standing in the holy place. And notice what it says here. What does it say next? Whoever reads, let him what? So some of you are like, I don't get it. This is just forget it. No, 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 don't forget it because Jesus said, get it. <laughs> You've got to understand these things. And so we are told to think. We're told to understand. He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those on the housetop go down, uh, not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter on Sabbath, because all of those things will make it hard for travel. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So you can see it's, it's pretty clear. He is revealed during the great tribulation. Daniel chapter 9 says, then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant or a treaty for many for one week or seven years. But in the middle of those seven years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. And he goes on. So Daniel, Jesus, uh, Paul, and then we'll see this as we go through Revelation. John all refer to the Antichrist and this moment that will happen during the day of the Lord, during the Great Tribulation, which Paul says, essentially, has it happened? Do you see the Antichrist? Well, no, Paul. Then you're not in the day of the Lord. Because that's the strong indicator that indeed you are. And so what is this treaty that we read about that the Antichrist is going to make? Well, we're not told. But we know everybody wants to get a treaty with Israel and wants to bring peace to Israel. And that will be, will be something to do with that. It wouldn't surprise me um, if what we find out happens is that the Antichrist is making, and he won't be known as that at that time, but this great politician will make a treaty that will allow both the Muslims and Israel to have a temple up on the Temple Mount. And I'm not going to get into it beyond that. But in the middle of that treaty, whatever it is, he's going to break it and he's going to say, in the temple, I'm your God, worship me. And that's what Paul's saying hasn't happened yet. So you can know you're not in the day of the Lord. So don't be troubled. Don't be shaken. 
Now, he says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So if you're like, well, there's you know, prophecy, we just don't need to spend time on it. But this is what was in the new believers packet at Thessalonica. They dealt with prophecy right off the bat. Because it's our hope. It's our hope. Jesus is coming back. When is he coming back? What, is going to be the t- what do we do until he comes back? It's a logical thing for us to be concerned about the coming of the Lord. Followers of Jesus that are not interested in being reunited with him, those are believers that drift. Those are believers that are not focused. The last thing that he says, which is not in chronological order, the third indicator is that the Antichrist's revealing is being restrained. So he says, you can know you're not in the, in the uh, tribulation, the day of the Lord, because the Antichrist is not revealed. But there was something at the moment, at the time that Paul was writing, and it is true to this day, that was keeping him from coming on the scene and being realized. What is it? And this is the great debate that is found in this passage. But we read that in verses 6 and 7, that they knew what was restraining and that he would be revealed in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. Only he who now restrains, there it is again, will do so until he's taken out of the way. Until the restrainer is removed, the force of that restraint will not allow the Antichrist to come on the scene. Now, we're not told what it was. You can't find it anywhere. First, second Thessalonians, not second Thessalonians, which means we are left to make an interpretation, and there is a, a wide variety of ideas. One of the earliest interpretations to this passage was given by a man um, by the name Tertullian. And he taught that in verse 6, the what of the restraining, the force of the restraining, was the Roman Empire. And the person of the restraining in verse 7 was the emperor, the Caesar. Well, was that right? Uh, No, because Rome is gone and so is the emperor. And here we are. And the Antichrist has still not been revealed. So that wasn't it. Others have said, well, it's Satan. Satan is the one that's holding back the coming of the Antichrist, which begs the question, why? Why would he do that? Well, he has a certain time. Oh, no, no, no. God's the one that's in charge of the prophetic time clock. Remember when Jesus was asked about the time of the kingdom and when it would be established? Did he say, well, I don't know. I've got to check with Satan because he's... No, he didn't say that. He said, the Father knows. These things are in the Father's hands. Um, Jesus also said... You know, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so the Antichrist wants to come, but Satan's restraining him. It it doesn't make sense. Who restrains Satan? Who holds Satan back from doing what he wants to do? And it is the Lord himself. Remember in that ancient book of Job, when Satan appeared before God in heaven, and he wanted to uh, trouble Job? He had to get permission because he was restrained from doing any harm or damage to Job or his belongings unless he first got permission from God. And so we see in Scripture that God is the one who is is restraining. 
Some have suggested, well, maybe God is sending his, his agent, Michael. I think that there, there could be some credence to that. I don't, that's not my position, but of the ones that I've mentioned, it certainly has a, a better chance of making sense than others. And I don't want to go through the long list of them, but those are a few of the popular ones of what the restraint is and who the restrainer is. But I would say to you that it is God manifested in the Holy Spirit in the church. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Do you remember that? And there was, there was a, a pouring out. And the church had never, well, the church began, but believers had never experienced anything like that before. Even Joel said, in the last days, God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Something different is going to happen. Jesus talked about it, Luke 24, 49. John the Baptist talked about it and how the Holy Spirit would be poured out by Jesus. In Acts 1.8, it's talked about again. Then in Acts chapter 2, it actually happens. And the church is birthed, and the church receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and an outpouring of the Spirit upon them in power to get the works done. And that had never been experienced before. Is that to say the Holy Spirit was not at work in the world before? No, the Holy Spirit was at work in the world before. But uniquely now... And up till this day, working through the church. And he's going to do that until the church is taken away. And it's his influence in the church that is holding back the plans of, the, of Satan to send forth the Antichrist. When God is finished with the church being here on planet Earth, and he takes us in a pre-tribulation rapture, then, not that the Holy Spirit has gone from the earth, but that influence of the Spirit in the church where Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail. My work is going to be done. When that is gone, then he will come on the scene and he will begin to carry out his plans and that treaty will begin and he'll stand in the middle of that uh, seven-year period and say, now worship me. But it's Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble. It's a day of wrath. And he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, you're not appointed to wrath. And so this is the, you know, the idea. Can I say emphatically, without any doubt, that it is the Holy Spirit? No, I can't because the text doesn't say that. So you're left to draw your, your own conclusions, and I gave you some of the reasons why I have fallen in the position that, that I do. But as we wrap it up, as we close here, the Lord's coming back, and all believers have this up. Now, whether it's, you know, you know, at, you know, at zero years, three and a half years, or seven years, we disagree on our, that. But Jesus is coming back. And it doesn't matter what position you hold. Everyone who holds one of those positions and, and believes, of course, in the second coming of Christ, believes we should be found waiting, we should be found watching, we should be sober, and we should be you know, unspotted from the influence of the world. This is the heart of the Lord for us is that we wouldn't be walking and carousing with the world, but we would be separated. And, you know, and listen, and there's a lot of cheap shots that are, that are fired across, you know, um, theological uh, bows of, 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 of thought. It's like, well, you post-tribulationists, you don't even care about the coming of the Lord. No, that, that's not fair. Oh, you pre-tribs, you, you know, you don't even want to worry about any kind of, you don't think any kind of suffering or hardship is going to go on, which is not true. We don't believe that. But these types of things are spoken what really, uh, every true believer is looking for the coming of the Lord. 
I just happen to believe there's nothing that has to happen for Jesus to come back today. But if you hold a mid-trib, you can't hold that position. And if you have a post-trib view, you certainly can't hold that because the Antichrist must come first. And if you're mid-trib, you got to at least get up to the beginning of the tribulation and make it halfway through. And none of those things have happened. So you can say Jesus isn't coming back today. And it's that imminent return of Christ that just drives me more than anything else to believe that Jesus will come for the church before any of this starts. That we're not waiting for something. That we should be found watching and waiting every single day. If you're not a believer, you need to come to Christ. And you need to be a part of this kingdom and this salvation that he's providing. And you need to be there when he comes and he back to the earth that you would rule and reign and, and you would be saved and have eternal life. If you're a believer, you need to make certain that you're living soberly and righteously and that you're not being marked by the influence of this world. And Scott Paulette told me to say that twice, that you're not being marked by the influence of this world. That Jesus is coming. And I don't want to look like the world when he comes. I want to look like him. And this is what the Spirit of God is working to do in our lives, is to shape us and fashion us into the image of Christ. If you're caught up in the things of the world, the Lord would say, walk away. We don't want to be busy doing our own bidding or the world's bidding or anything like that. We want to be locked in on Jesus and waiting for him. And so as we prepare to take communion, if you need to come to Christ, then come. Confess your sin and ask him to forgive you, and he will. And if you're a believer that's just off and you're wandering around and you look more like the world than you do a Christian today, then let's get it right. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your kindness and your goodness. Lord, it's pretty amazing that you have given us so much information about what's going to happen in the last days. But we know why. You said that you tell your friends that things are going to happen before they do. And so you're giving us a report ahead of time so that we could be ready, that we could be stirred up, that we could be prepared to call people to salvation and be found ready for you. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your love.